Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for being here. Uh, I apologize about the copies. I, I, you know, I always think, well, I'll be enough copies, and then, well, I just make some extra. Like, well, then you just throw them away. Well, it'd be easier to just make a couple extra copies. So, all right, we're in Zechariah chapter nine, looking actually tonight in verses eleven through seventeen. Uh, I've got verses 9 through 17 written here on this top two pages. I've read it a couple times, the last couple times we were here. Uh, The pronouns in here are important, and I think I've identified them correctly in the sense that when it talks about the Jews, the Jewish people, both the people of, uh, well, whatever this is referring to, it could be the people of of Zechariah's day, it could be, you know, the next generation, the following generation, or it could be a distant generation. It's the Jewish people. They're referred to as daughter of Zion, uh, and that would, of course, be uh, 30 A.D., daughter of Zion. Uh, you, your prisoners, and that would be future, those that have been scattered in other nations, and also them. That's talking about a Jewish group of people. Then it talks about the king or the royal man, which would be, uh, what we'd say the Messiah, we'd name him Jesus, uh, the, the son of David that's to come, is referred to as your king or he or his. But also speaking throughout this is Yahweh, who's identified by I, because he's the one speaking. He says I, uh, it's referred to as the Lord or his, the Lord of hosts. And so those are the three, in a sense, three people that are engaged in this, uh, that they're talking about. It becomes even more confusing because eventually Yahweh is going to become the king. He's going to become the man. He's going to become flesh, Emmanuel. So the king, Jesus, the the royal man, is also going to be Yahweh. So you've got Yahweh speaking but then you've also got Yahweh speaking to himself, who is now the king, as we go through this. So uh, I'm going to read through this here, and then I'm going to show you this, just uh, some verses, which, you know, I got 24 pages of notes, and then I fill the board up with verses that aren't directly related to this, so uh, we'll see how this goes. All right, here it says, Zechariah 9, 9, and you know this first verse. Uh, This was fulfilled, we would assume, in 30 A.D. when Jesus came in uh, on Palm Sunday. But chapter 9, verse 10, clearly is talking about a future event, even future uh, from the New Testament and possibly into our future. And I'm going to say it's, it's the second coming of the Lord. But that's not absolute. I mean, so, I mean, we got to be careful as we navigate through this. Uh, Here it is, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And that would be the Jews, 30 A.D. Behold, your king, the Messiah, the son of David, is coming to you, you Jews. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Chapter 9, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Now we're into a war scene. The previous verse was in peace, coming on a donkey, uh, coming in royalty, offering peace. He was rejected by the people. He rejected the people. And so that whole thing was put on hold. Now there's, they've been taken into captivity again. Because remember, this is being written in 518 when the Jews have just returned from captivity. 
And so that you'd think, well, they're back from captivity. Here's all the good things that are going to happen. They end up talking about sometimes about the Greeks in these verses, but they're looking to a day where they're going to have a war and have a regathering of the people. It's like, well, then we just get back from captivity. But then here they're going to be gathering the people. So between 518 and some point in the future, there's going to be the regathering, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, then apparently another destruction and another scattering of the people before they can be regathered again. Uh, Because they're talking about a regathering right after they've been regathered. Okay, so here's the war scene, chapter 9, verse 10. I will cut off, that's I, Yahweh, not not the Messiah, not the King, not Jesus, not the, the one riding on the horse. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he, the king, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. So Yahweh will come back and engage in war and cut off all the enemy offensive military weapons from Ephraim, northern Israel, Jerusalem, southern Judah, or the southern kingdom. And at that point, then he, the Messiah, will begin to rule in peace. So you've got Yahweh engaged in war. Uh, and we've just seen earlier in chapter 9, Yahweh marching from the north. But when the, Yahweh was marching from the north, it was Alexander that was doing the marching. Uh, and so Yahweh really didn't have boots on the ground himself. He was using Alexander like he used Nebuchadnezzar, like he used Cyrus. But anyway, when he does this, the Messiah will rule. Uh, from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 11. As for you also, you Jews, continuing the thought also, because of the blood of my, Yahweh's covenant with you, you Jews, which would be the Mosaic covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Yahweh will set the Jewish prisoners free from the waterless pit. And that is probably referring to the Mosaic Covenant that when he di- you disobey, he'll disperse you. But because of that covenant, he will bring you back. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. And the stronghold, we would assume, is Jerusalem. O prisoners of hope would be those who have been kept in prison for centuries, as we look at it now, hoping that Yahweh will come get them as he promised. Today, I, Yahweh, declare that I will restore to you Jews double. That would be full restoration plus benefits. Uh, For I, and this is where it gets interesting, I, Yahweh, have bent Judah as my bow. He's now, he used Alexander in those first verses. Now he's using Judah. I have made Ephraim its arrow. So Judah, the southern tribe, is the bow. The northern tribes are the arrow so there's a regathering already taking place of the tribes being brought back together uh i will stir up your sons o zion and that'd be the jewish sons against your sons o greece well now they're out of nowhere all of a sudden they're going to go to war against greece and that's what's rising here uh in four or five eighteen within 20 years there's going to start i'll show you the conflict when we get in the notes uh, the Gr- greeks is already challenging persia uh across the aegean sea and so they know they're coming in fact xerxes here uh or xerxes esther's husband that he comes back and marries esther xerxes by 485 he's going to war against the greeks in athens burns athens okay so again we got to figure that out 
I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Uh, I will say this again. Greece is going to be played into this picture here in Xerxes already, with the Persians going to war against them. Alexander's going to come, we already saw that, come to the temple. That was earlier in the chapter. Then the, the generals of Alexander are going to divide his kingdom. You're going to have the Seleucid kingdom that talked the, the Syrian wars that Daniel referred to. The, the Greeks are going to come down, and that's going to result in the Maccabean revolt and setting up of uh, the New Testament kingdom. But yet, is that a future day also of the Greeks tying into the kingdom of the Antichrist, the final days of the Greeks also? So you've got four references to the Greeks there. Again, we've got to figure this out when we go through there. Uh, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and weld you like a warrior sword. He is going to weld the Jews like a sword. Verse 14, I got it in stars there, asterisk. Then the Lord, then Yahweh will appear over them. Not he the king, not the Messiah, but Yahweh, God himself, will appear, visually be seen over them. Over who? Over the Jews. And his arrow will go forth like lightning. So Yahweh now is visible in the universe, if you read that literally, appear. He's going to appear. He's been using Alexander in chapter 9. He's now using Ephraim and Judah to do his fighting. Ephraim's the arrow, Judah's the bow. But now all of a sudden, Yahweh will appear. He's now fighting himself. He's going to shoot his arrow and his, or use lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet. The Lord God is sounding the trumpet, not someone else. And will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. So he's coming from the south. Uh, the Lord, okay, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angelic armies, will protect them, the Jews, and they, the Jews, shall devour and tread down the sling stones. So now Yahweh's appeared, he's sounding the battle the trumpet, he's visible, engaged in the warfare, but he's also protecting the Jews while they're fighting, and they are devouring uh, and treading down the sling stones, they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl. That's where we talked last week, refer to this. Uh, there, it's not talking about alcohol, but in the sense that the weapons are coming at them and they're just absorbing them, defeating the weapons. So much victory that they're in a sense drunk on victory, that they can't be defeated. They're drenched like the corners of an altar. On that day, the Lord, their God, Yahweh, the Jews' God will save them, the Jews, and the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they, the Jews, shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Referring to now that that's been done, it's going to continue into the next generation and we are into the kingdom age. Uh, now, that's some verses we've got to get some details out of. But before we do that, uh, if this is the second coming, you see the Jews fighting, and then, you know, the Lord's empowering them, but then the Lord appearing, and then engaging in the battle. And you're going to have several challenges throughout, uh, not challenges, in Zechariah 12 and 14, where you're going to see the Jews also fighting again in the final days, when Jerusalem's surrounded by the nations. So what I've got right here is I, I've been talking about this uh, 
referring to it. I thought we just, I hope we can just blast through this. I, I, instead of just referring to it, I want to show you a few things. Go to Revelation 16, 12 through 16. Uh, and again, this is not in, it, it's in a rough order. Uh, but the, the question here, uh, and again, I do not want to, and you've you got to think, you can disagree with me, uh, but I'm going to ask uh, and challenge my idea, or just you know, your common you know, Sunday school idea of the second coming. Now again, Jesus is coming back, I'm not challenging that. But in my Sunday school mind, there's a day coming in the future where you know, all hell's breaking loose on the earth, and finally Jesus says, that's enough, the sky splits, he comes, lands on the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives splits, he marches into Jerusalem and sets up his kingdom. The problem with that, I mean, something like that is going to happen, but the problem with that is there's a whole lot of information and battles all over uh, taking place, uh, including Zechariah, where half of the city is going to be, uh, two-thirds of the city is going to be taken uh, and taken captive, and the Lord is not, and then the Lord is going to go out and fight as he does on the day of battle. So he's going to come and fight in Jerusalem, but we're going to see here, like I've said, in Isaiah 63, he's coming from Edom with his garments stained with blood, having already returned and fought the nations. And so what about Armageddon? Where's Armageddon? And so I begin with this right here. Not that I've, I don't have a, a solid answer on this yet, but I know there's things happening here uh, that it's not just a simple sky splits, Jesus lands the Mount of Olives, and we're, we're there. There's events and battles here we go, uh, Revelation chapter 16, uh, verse 12 through 16. Uh, I mean, we're jumping right into it. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. So we're already through the seals, the trumpets, and now we're into the sixth bowl already. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then, and again, that would be the kings of the east coming from the east. Maybe that some people would say China. Uh, you know, the, the Asian countries, but it could just simply be, you know, Iraq, Iran, you know, the, the, the Middle Eastern, further, you know, Euphrates, so they can cross, again, no answer for that yet, just understand, it's not an angelic army, that's referred to earlier, but nonetheless, an army is coming from the east for the kings of the east, now they're coming against the, the Antichrist, who would be the king, but there's also been a king of the north and a king of the south. Then I saw... Three evil spirits that looked like frogs, they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs in the earth, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. So they're, they're gathering the kings together. And then it says, verse 15, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Verse 16, Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, or Har Megiddo, which means the hill of Megiddo, which is Megiddo, which is, sits right there and overlooks the Megiddo Valley, or the Valley of Jezreel. And that would, it says, it doesn't say they go to war. Again, I'm not, I don't want to rewrite theology here, but it doesn't say they go to war. It says the kings gather there. And if you go back and just flip through the files of your mind, Jerusalem's always invaded from the north. The, the different, you're going to have Gog is coming from the north. 
and they're coming to attack Jerusalem. So I'm, this just says gather. There doesn't say they're, they're having a war in Armageddon. They're gathering in Armageddon, uh, a huge plane, and possibly to make their approach to Jerusalem. Again, to keep that in mind, I'm going to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. Oh, boy. Um, I should have typed these out so we didn't have to flip around for them. Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Uh, again, I don't have a, I'm not going to give you all the context. So again, you can be critical of this because, hey, wait, where's the context? Well, chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Again, I do not think this verse has ever taken place. You've had war with Babylon, war with the Persians. You've had you know, different wars. But this is all the nations, which I think is an eschatological indication. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Everything's going to be turned to weapons. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. And this is, again, a mocking thing. You're, you're a weak Trying to, re, trying to rebuild a military. You're all weak. You're not ready for war, but get ready for war and start saying, I am strong, and you're ready for war. You're not, but go ahead and say it. Come quickly, all you nations. Come every, from every side and assemble there. Assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, the valley of Jehoshaphat, we've talked about, that is where the Lord judges. Jehoshaphat means where the Lord judges. And the Lord is going to judge in the Kidron Valley or just, you know, as the Kidron Valley extends east of Jerusalem. That's where his throne will be set. He says when the king, of, a king comes in all of his glory and the, and the nations are gathered to him, he'll judge them. And so that's the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley, it's not a real place. There's no place you can show on your map. This is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat marched out through a valley and, and had a battle. And you could say that's it, but it would include the same direction. But it's a valley that the, it basically says the valley where the Lord will judge. So wherever the Lord judges, that's the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, meaning they're going to advance into the valley where they're going to be judged by God. They've been gathered together, and now they're going to march to where they're going to be judged by the Lord. Let the nations be aroused. Let them advance to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge the nations on every side. And that's exactly what Jesus says when, the, when he comes in on his glory, he's going to do. Swing the, swing the sickle uh, that goes on. Micah 4. And I appreciate your patience as we go through this. Micah chapter 4, verse 11. Now, all of chapter, I'm going to read up to chapter 5, verse 1. But beginning in chapter 5, verse 2, it's, it's another set of verses we're going to look at if everything goes well tonight. And I can't imagine it going that far that well. Chapter 4, verse 11 of Micah. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let us let her be defiled. They're gathered against Jerusalem. Micah 4.11. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He who gathers them like the sheaves to the threshing floor. 
They've been gathered at Armageddon. They've advanced to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. They do not know what they're doing. They're going to attack Jerusalem, which is what the Lord is leading them to do. That's why the demons went out to gather them. It's God leading them to this place of judgment. Um, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. Verse 13, rise and thresh. Now, see this right here, verse 13. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. It doesn't say, again, this is my, not my problem, but it doesn't say the Lord splits the sky and comes down and smokes them. It says, the Lord says, rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. As they're attacking Jerusalem, they're going to be f- being defeated. The nations are defeated by Israel fighting back. You, are de- you will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. And that takes us down to this right here. You see, if this is the final battle, you see Israel engaged in physical warfare. Now, uh, we're going we're gonna to see more of that right here. In fact, let's go to Zechariah 12. Go to Zechariah. This is our book we're studying right now. Zechariah 12. I sh- shouldn't rush ahead. But I want you to say, I, I, I'm doing this not, not so much to teach you but to show you what i'm trying to put together uh not that no one else has ever figured it out but i'm trying to process this but in zechariah chapter 12 verse 1 through 3 again i'm assuming these wars are the end time battles chapter 12 verse 1 this is the word of the lord concerning israel the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and for whom forms the spirit of man within him. Verse 2, I am going to make Jerusalem, he says, a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when, and that's a phrase for eschatological in the future, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock. So here, Jezreel Valley, Valley of Jehoshaphat, Israel's fighting back. Now Zechariah is saying the same thing. The nations are coming, but they're not going to move Jerusalem. Um, an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will, I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I'll make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among the the sheaves. They will consume right and left all surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. But again, it's not the Lord coming back and doing it. It's him empowering the Jews to fight on that day. That's Zechariah 12. Now go to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Now, now, 
you remember what we just read in chapter 9, those first verses? I'll make Judah a bow, I'll make Ephraim an arrow, uh, the sons of Zion will be like a sword in the hand of the Lord. And then it says, suddenly, and, it's sort of, and they're fighting. Then the, it says, then the Lord will appear, and now the Lord is sounding a trumpet and marching. Well, you can see how that would parallel what we just read here as far as Judah fighting. But now go to verse 14. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder, Jerusalem, will be divided among you. I will gather, there you're gathering all nations to Jerusalem. Just right here, gathering the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. And what's going to happen? The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Now, it's not going to be Jude. They're getting defeated on this day. Now, on this day, verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. Now the Lord shows up. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. Now, in my mind, I've always read this. This is where the Lord goes out, and it, it may be correct. The Lord comes out of heaven and lands on the Mount of Olives. The problem with that, for me, is in Isaiah, he's coming, he's already gone down to Edom, and he's already coming back from battle, having defeated the nations in Edom, and now he's coming out of heaven to land on the Mount of Olives. But you've already fought the nations in Edom, now you're fighting them at Jerusalem. I mean, it's like, which one is it? Now again, the Jews got confused, and they eventually decided there was two different messiahs. There's the messiah that was going to come and suffer. Then there's the messiah that was going to come in victory. That wasn't right. It's the same guy, as we would know. So, I mean, this somehow fits together. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see my tension? Or you're like, we don't, we're not even with you. You're like, it, it, look, it looks like, or, instead, uh, 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 a battle in a, a campaign like a military campaign that involves different stations of okay then the lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle on that day his feet will stand on the mount of olives and that's what the angel says the same jesus will come back the same way he left he left going up so you assume he's coming back coming down east of jerusalem and at that point, the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley. So now there's an earthquake. The mountains, uh, Mount of Olives splits with half the mountain moving north, half the mountain moving south. You will flee by the mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled in the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And the holy ones most likely are in this. Are they saints or are they angels? I think in this case, I'm going to say the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angelic armies. His holy ones are his angelic armies coming with him. On that day, there will be no light. goes on and talks about it. Um, verse 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth on that day. Okay, so that, that's these, these Zechariah verses. And they kind of, you know, you can see the battle coming to Jerusalem. Judah fighting, and then the Lord fighting. Even seems like two different battles in Jerusalem. One's a battle where the Jews are powered by God, fighting victorious. Somehow they get, start getting overrun, and the Lord comes back and defeats the nations. Now go to Isaiah 63. 
Well, go to Isaiah 34. We'll set it up with Isaiah 34. Uh, Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 7. And you're going to gather the nations again. The nation will be gathered for judgment. Isaiah 34, verse 1. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples, meaning the Gentile peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all the nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved. The sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like a withered leaves from the vine and the shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. That's where the angelic hosts are. See, it descends in judgment on Edom. Like there's been a battle in the heavens already. All the powers of the heavens have been defeated by the sword of the Lord. And once that's over, now he descends on Edom to finish off the nations. He takes out the rulers and authorities that's ruling the nations in the spiritual realm. Once that's done, he descends on Edom to actually take out the physical armies. The people I have totally destroyed... The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats from the, from the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. And that sacrifice in Basra is the sacrifice of the nations. Uh, Basra is the capital of Edom. And a great slaughter in Edom. And it goes on and talks about that. How far I've got just seven. Okay, now go to Isaiah 63. So now you've got the Lord, if you, if you play that out, you've got the Lord in the atmosphere having defeated angelic hosts. Now if you remember in Revelation, there's a place when Satan loses his place in heaven and is cast to the earth. That may correlate. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Well, I mean, if we put it together... This is where the Lord came down at Basra in Edom and slaughtered like a sacrifice all the nations that were there. And now he's coming from Edom with garments stained with blood. Well, Isaiah says, who is this? Who is this robed in splendor? Now, again, I've pointed this out before. That word splendor is the word Hadar. It means glory. Going back to Isaiah 53, when he came the first time, he came with no Hadar, no glory. They would not recognize him. He did not have glory. He looked like a, a normal man. And then he, he presented himself as God, but he had no glory or beauty that would attract us to him. Well, now he comes. Who is this? He's robed in Hadar. He's robed with this splendor. Like the disciples saw Jesus transfigured. This guy's coming with a garment stained in blood, but he's robed in glory like Jesus was at the transfiguration. Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. It is I, righteous and riding on a donkey with salvation. Well, who is this now uh, robed in splendor? Same guy that came in on the donkey. I've got righteousness and I'm mighty to save, but I've won the battle this time. 
Why are your garments red like those of one treading a wine? It looks like you've been working in a wine press treading grapes all day. Well, I have trodden the wine press alone. What, you making grapes? No. From the nations, no one was with me. No one agreed with me. None of the na- national leaders agreed with me. None of the kings says, we're on the Lord's side. So I looked, there was no one that, that agreed with me. I trampled them in my anger. I trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered on my garments and stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support for my military efforts. There was no support from the Congress. They didn't send tanks or billions of dollars. I was alone, so I just trampled them by myself. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger, in my wrath. I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. This is the Lord coming out of Edom after having trampled the nations who have gathered at Armageddon, marched to the valley of Jehoshaphat, attacked Jerusalem, been defeated by the Jews, but now uh, are they being overrun by the nations? And then you've got Micah chapter 2. Go back to Micah chapter 2. Do I want to do Micah chapter 2? I hope you're still with me on this. Micah chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. I hope this is a good verse here. Micah chapter 2, verse 12 through. Okay, here's what I got. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I'll surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. Uh, I do not think that's the verse I wanted. Let me look at my notes here quick and see if I see something. Yeah, that's, that's what I wanted. It doesn't make sense though right now. Okay, uh, now, with that being said, right here in Acts chapter 1, let's go here just so I can read it to you. Acts chapter 1. Uh, Jesus has ascended into heaven, and here's the verse, Acts chapter 1. And the disciples are standing there, of course. And uh, they're looking, chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, Jesus tells them to go wait in Jerusalem. He's going to send the Spirit. Uh, and you, you do realize they had just asked uh, in verse 6. So when they met together, this is the last time the disciples meet with Jesus on earth. And they ask him, Lord, Now, he's died on the cross. He's been resurrected. He's been with them 40 days. And they they were with him like 47 days ago before this. They were with him when they were 50, yeah, when they walked into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and they thought the kingdom was coming. And the people ended up rejecting Jesus. He rejected the people. And then he went through this whole crucifixion resurrection part. And they're like, well, that really, they're confused. But now that everything's back on track, they ask him, the obvious question lord are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to israel all these verses we're looking at now are are you going to do that now whatever you did here this dying and resurrection okay thank you we understand that but are we going to get back to what you came for that john the baptist was talking about and we're working with you trying to get you to take the kingdom 
are you going to do that at this time and restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates. He doesn't say no, but he doesn't say yes. In fact, he does say, I'm going to, but you're not going to know when it's going to happen. That's for the Father who has said it by his own authority. But you will be receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and into all the ends of the earth. So between him dying and him setting up the kingdom, insert the church age, and that's where we're at, waiting for him to return. We're in between Zechariah 9, 9, him riding in on a donkey, and Zechariah 9, 10, when he begins to reestablish the kingdom. After he said these things, he was taken up before their very eyes, and very importantly, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, you can, be all, uh, you can consider that like atmospheric clouds, moisture in the air, or if you go with the fact that Jesus says he'll be coming in clouds of glory, and referring back to Daniel, that he comes in like a son of man in the clouds of glory, this is probably a very clear reference to he was taken up into the clouds of glory. Uh, it, it, it says cloud. He was in a cloud, hid him from their sight. Now you've got to decide if that's just, just a cloudy day there, a little overcast, and he disappeared into the clouds. That's fine. Or is this like he went up in the clouds because well, that's how he's going to come back. Well, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, which all of us would do. It'd be like, well, he's gone. Let's go get something to eat. It's like, I mean, it's like, I've never seen, I mean, it's not like you've seen this before. We would videotape it. I would get my camera out and it'd be on, you know, it'd be on Facebook. The, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same, now this is the verse we're looking for. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So, there, I mean, there it is. You saw him stand physically on the Mount of Olives and ascend into the cloud. The day is coming where it's going to be just, he's going to come out of the clouds of glory and it will be right back here on the Mount of Olives. Now, that would be Zechariah 14 if he's coming out of the sky. Now, it, it, it doesn't say he's going it, it says this, he's going to come back the same way. It, it doesn't say specifically he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives, that he's going to land on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah says his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, but here he's marching out of Edom, and he always comes from the south. When the Lord comes to deliver Israel, he always comes from the south. We've seen that in prophets. We're going to see it in these verses tonight if we would keep going forever tonight. Um, he could be marching from the south up through the valley of Jehoshaphat and then marching over, just like on Palm Sunday, he stayed on the east side, Bethphage, and then walked up over. They stopped by a village, got a couple donkeys, and walked into Jerusalem. His feet were on the Mount of Olives on the day of, of, uh, uh, of, of Palm Sunday. He doesn't have to land on the Mount of Olives, although I have always assumed he would. He could just walk there and his feet be on the Mount of Olives on that day. There you have it. Uh, that's this verse, Acts. Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43. And in Ezekiel 43, uh, you've got the Lord's glory returning. 
and it, it's a sequence. And I think you can honor the sequence that Ezekiel's got. In chapter 37, you've got the dry bones of a nation coming back together. And the Spirit breathing on them, coming to life, and becoming living beings again. Then chapter 38, you've got the prophecy of Gog, the invasion from the north. Uh, a, a king from the, it's, a, it's a confederation of nations from the north. It's the king of the north coming down and invading Jerusalem, but doesn't make it, dies on the hills of Jerusalem because the Lord strikes down with uh, uh, atmospheric uh, earthquakes. There is no real war. The Lord doesn't come fight him. Israel doesn't fight him. It's, they're just destroyed because of earthquakes and hailstones, and they're just, they just die on the mountains of, of Israel. That is, takes place after they come back from the Valley of Dry Bones. And then, that's 38 and 39. Chapter 40, if you're going to read this in a sequence, is now the rebuilding of the new temple. The new temple, the millennial temple is built, and you can see it's all the details of it are given there, how big it is. In fact, so detailed, I've got a drawing that the writers of the NIV Study Bible made a drawing of it. That's how detailed it is. You've got study Bibles with the same type of drawing in it. Uh, 41, 42, still describing it. And then in chapter 43, just watch this now. This is now the glory returning to that new temple. The man brought me, and that's an angel escorting Ezekiel around, brought me to the gate facing east. That's the eastern gate, looking over the Kidron Valley at the Mount of Olives. And I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. Now, coming from the east would be coming from the Mount of Olives. Would be coming up from the backside of the Mount of Olives, up over. Or he could be coming in the air like a chariot in the air like Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel began. But nonetheless, he sees it coming from the east, which is from the Mount of Olives. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. That's the splendor we saw in Isaiah 63. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city in Jerusalem. He saw the chariot of the Lord leave the temple. And like the visions I had seen by the Kiba River. So he identifies two other times he saw the chariot of God when the chariot lifted up and the Lord leaves the temple earlier in Ezekiel. And when he's in Babylon and on his 30th birthday, in that right around that time period, uh, the fifth year, he sees... Uh, the, well, how the book of Ezekiel begins, the wheel within a wheel and the cherubim. He sees it. So that would give the impression that it's, it's similar to that coming there. But now the Lord, he's, the Lord is coming to re-enter the temple right here from the same place in Acts. Now, just to be fair, we've got to go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now, here, here, here's, here's the second coming. Chapter 19 in Revelation and I'm by no means saying there's a conflict. There's no conflict here. Uh, if there's confusion, it's how this, how this fits together. And the confusion is, on my part, how this all fits together. But you see, there's Armageddon. There's the attack on Jerusalem. Now you've got the Jews in a couple places defending Jerusalem in the end times. Then you've got the Lord coming to fight in Jerusalem. But he's coming out of Edom. But he's showing up on the Temple Mount. Uh, 144,000 are going to be on the Temple Mount with him, landing back on the Mount of Olives or coming over the Mount of Olives. And then Revelation 19, if that's not enough, Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. Now that's important because chapter 9, verse 9, the king comes to you humble, riding on a donkey. 
He's coming in peace. He's not coming in war. He's already established. He's just offering you peace. Now, he's coming in chapter 19, verse 11. Heaven is open, and before me was a white horse, just like Alexander coming like a warrior on his horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. Now, we know this is Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah. With justice, he judges and makes war. He's coming back, and he's making war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood. Now, uh, it's worth noting as we go through this, not that you have to make it absolute, but if you read this for what it says, he's coming out of heaven on a horse. He's coming to make war, but his garments, his robe, is already dipped in blood. It doesn't say it's going to be dipped in blood or it's getting splattered with blood. It's coming out of heaven dipped in blood. Well, and again, you can say, well, that must be the blood of the sacrifice, his blood of the cross. I, I, don't, I, mean, I don't think he's coming back with his garments stained with blood from the cross. Uh, I think this is part of this ideal of his garments stained with blood from war. If this is already stained with blood, has Isaiah 63 already happened? Is it an anticipation? Is it just a figure of speech? He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, now again, the armies of heaven, I have to think, are angelic armies. The saints may have gone to heaven. Uh, they, you know, the rapture's taken place. They're coming, they're coming back with the Lord. But we are not the armies of heaven, I would think. We're the saints. We're the church. We're the bride of Christ. We're, but we're not the armies of heaven. We could be, but I don't think that's the case. You decide. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now again, white and clean refers to the good deeds of the saints. That would be saying, well, that could be the saints coming back. But you can have saints white and clean, and you can also have angels white and clean. You decide. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. But well, they're not struck down already. I thought we already, I mean, how many times are we going to strike down the nations? And from how many places does he have? He's striking them down in Armageddon. He's striking them down in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. He's striking them down in Basra. He's striking them down, well, here he's striking them down at this time in Acts, or Revelation 19. He will rule them with an iron scepter, and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe is on his, on his thigh is his name, written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God. Because there's going to be so many people killed, we need someone to clean up this mess. So that you might eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people. If we continue reading in Zechariah 14, uh, the, peop- the horses and the people, uh, there's a plague. Their flesh melts on their bodies. There's a plague that strikes them that in Zechariah 14. Their flesh melts on their bodies. Is this the same time? Is he coming back here to deliver Jerusalem like he's coming back in Zechariah 14? Or is he coming back to strike the nations in Isaiah 63? Here he's striking down the nations. Verse 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, so the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth that had been gathered at Armageddon, and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and on his army. They're, now the beast is not trying to take Jerusalem. They've gathered together to fight Jesus or the king coming back. 
Do you understand? It, it, may be, it may be the same event, but one event is they are coming to destroy Jerusalem, and they're stopped. Here, they're gathered together to fight against Jesus. They'll still be stopped. Is it the same event, or is it two different events? But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive, which is an interesting thing, into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. Jesus is doing the fighting here, not Judah, not the Jews, not you know, the people of Jerusalem. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Okay, that's... Do, do, do you see the, the crazy activity? If that is the second coming of the Lord, uh, he's landing on the Mount of Olives, like floating down like a butterfly. The mountain splits in two. He's coming over like a chariot into the temple in Ezekiel, but he's in the valley ju- judging the nations. He's destroying the nations in Edom. He's destroying the nations in Revelation 19. He's coming back. He helps empower Judah to defend Jerusalem. Now he's coming back and defeating Jerusalem, the enemies of the nations after half of Jerusalem has fallen. Uh, so there you have it. And I wanted to show you that before we read this right here in chapter 9 of Zechariah. We're going to go to Zechariah chapter 9. I am checking my phone for time. Ah, 11 minutes. <laughs> uh, more than enough to cover 24 pages of notes. And the reason I wanted to read that for you, and I hope you don't mind, is because now we're going to start reading Scripture, and this somehow, if it fits into eschatology, if it fits into the second coming, or this, what some people would call the campaign of Armageddon. You know, the bat, it's the battle of Armageddon. It may be better the campaign. Some scholars say the, the campaign of Armageddon because of all this activity going on. The nations have been gathered but there's going to be a series of battles. Sometimes Judah's fighting, sometimes the Lord's fighting in Edom, sometimes it's in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, I don't know how it all works out, but what we're reading here may give us some insight into these events. So here we go. Page two uh, on the notes, it's just, there we already covered this. That's uh, the, uh, the Palm Sunday. Jesus writing in the definition of the donkey, a purebred. We covered that. Uh, and he's coming in peace. Chapter 9, verse 10 on page 3 in the English Standard Version. I, that's uh, Yahweh saying, I will cut off the chariot of, from Ephraim. And this is now Yahweh speaking, or the Lord. And again, obviously we know Yahweh is the Messiah, the King. But in this case, he's speaking, in a sense, from heaven. And he's empowering Ephraim, or he's protecting Ephraim and, and uh, Judah. And he's cutting off the three main uh, weapons. He's cutting off uh, the, the horse, the chariot, and the battle bow. Is that what it is? The bow, is that what it is? The third one there? Uh, yeah, the battle bow shall be cut off. Uh, and when that takes place, when Yahweh does these things, these are removed. These are the offensive weapons that have been coming against northern Ephraim. It says Ephraim, but that's probably a reference to the northern tribes and judah that's a reference to the southern tribes so reunited judah israel's been regathered and he removes the the offensive weapons and it says cut them off and that means to destroy them i'll show you some references to that 
And when that takes place, when Yahweh does that, then the Messiah, the king, uh, the one who came riding in on a donkey, now he will get to rule the nations in peace, and his rule shall be from sea to sea. Now what seas? The Dead Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, or sea to shining sea, Atlantic to Pacific, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, from the Nile River to the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Generally, that means the whole world. Now, here we go. Uh, point one at the bottom of page three, Yahweh speaks. In the future, he will deliver Jerusalem. Turning to page four, uh, A and B at the top of the page. I is Yahweh speaking. He is a reference to the Davidic king. Yahweh will cut off the three main weapons. I've got them written there. Uh, Ephraim, north. Uh, Jerusalem is in the south, or Judah. Point six, uh, it says they've been reunited. Point seven, Yahweh will cut off the offensive weapons. Here's the word eight. Point eight, the word cut off is K-A-R-A-T, karath. It means to cut off or cut down. Here's some uses of it in the Old Testament. Saul used, uh, he cut off the mediums and the spiritists. In other words, the, the witchcraft, he cut them off. You weren't allowed in Israel. Micah 5, 9, 10. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in, the de- in that day, declares Yahweh, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy, uh, or, uh, and destroy your chariots. And I've got written here, read all of Micah chapter 5, because Micah chapter 5, I got 5 verse 1 through 3, actually chapter 5 verse 1 is part of a chapter 4. So chapter 5, verse 2 and 3 describe the first coming, and then the second coming is described in chapter 5, verse 4 through 15. We could do that, but I think we've done enough of that right now. I don't want to do that again. Also, Daniel 9, verse 26, when it says the Messiah, the king, will be cut off. When the Messiah, the king, comes, he'll come to his nation, but will but will cut off and will not receive the kingdom. That's Palm Sunday. He came to receive his kingdom, but the people rejected him. He rejected the people, and he was cut off and didn't receive anything. And he goes to heaven. Resurrected and goes to heaven. Uh, and so Zechariah, point D at the bottom of page 4, Zechariah 9, 10, cut off seems to refer to the violent destruction of the horse, the chariot, and the bow that are oppressing Ephraim and Judah. Nonetheless, he comes in and destroys them. It all could be one. Like, for example, a horse would draw a chariot, and the rider in the chariot would be driving the chariot with a, someone in the back with a bow and arrow. So there may be one entire you know, unit right there. Uh, turning to page 5. Uh, the purpose, chapter point nine, the Messiah, because, of that, because Yahweh does that, the Messiah will be able to rule in peace. So this, in a sense, describes that final battle. The enemies are going to be removed. The king is going to show up and rule in peace like he wanted to in chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, uh, point 11, I give a little definition there. Uh, the Davi- Davidic king's dominion will be from sea to sea, and it could be from the Nile to the Euphrates, from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea, from the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea. The point uh, is going to be a universal rule. Uh, You see something similar in Psalm 72, verses 8 through 7. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish, which would be the far west, and of the coastlands, the far west, render him tribute. And may the kings of Sheba and Seba, that's the south, bring him gifts. May all the kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. That's talking about when the king comes. Isaiah 66, 
uh, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. They were gathered for destruction, but the survivors will be gathered to see Jesus' glory, which could be the, you know, the judgment. Uh, and some are welcomed into the kingdom. And I will set a sign among them, and fr- from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pul, to Lud, who draw the board to Tubal and Javan. Javan is the word for Greece, and I'll show you that. And the coastlands far away that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. That's what's going to take place when Jesus returns. Now, the king, who's going to be setting this up, in the ancient Middle East, the king was responsible for these six things. The king, when you were voted, not voted, when you got put in position as king, you had the responsibility to, one, represent the gods before the people as a mediator. It was a priestly role. Now, in Judah, that was given to Aaron. But you remember Melchizedek? He was priest and king of God. He did both of them. A pharaoh would do both of them. You can see the the monuments of the uh, Assyrians uh, before the Babylonians here. But they would be the king, but they'd also be the priest. They would, would do the, the praying and the, uh, the work of the, of, the, of the priest. And so that's the job of the king, except in Israel, that was given to uh, the line of Aaron. Now, when Jesus returns, he's going to be in the line, like in Hebrews and Psalms, he's going to fulfill both the king and the priestly role. He's going to unite them because no one else would, could do that. He represented the people before the gods as a priest. He maintained justice as a judge. And again, justice was important. That they had to maintain justice. Military commander-in-chief. So they'd be the court system. They'd be the general. They'd be the priest representing the people before God, but also the priest communicating to the people for God. Care for the people with protection, provisions, and leadership. They're going to make sure they've got all the welfare programs intact. And then peace, which is the well-being and harmony of the society, that there would be a peaceful society. That's what the king was supposed to do. Now, the perfect king, Yahweh, when he comes, he'll do that. And Israel's king was Yahweh. You can see that in Isaiah 6, verse 5. The Davidic kings were a mere representation of what God wanted for a king. Uh, Isaiah 6, verse 5, Isaiah writes, My eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. So throughout the Old Testament, you've got the Davidic king, but they also knew that Yahweh was also the king, which is not surprising when Yahweh becomes a man. He is the Yahweh, the king, the man. Psalm 999, verse 1 through 2, Yahweh is king. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, just like in Ezekiel's vision. Let the earth shake. Yahweh is great in Zion, and he is exalted over all the people. Uh, one more verse, and then I'll quit for the night. Isaiah, this, is, this is an amazing verse if you can look at it here. Top of page 6, Isaiah 44, 6. I'll read it in the English Standard. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. So, and that word Lord is Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, King of Israel. That's his title. He is the King of Israel. Uh, and he was trying to be the king, remember? But the people says, we want a king like everybody else. So he gave him Saul. And that didn't work out. So he says, okay, David will represent me. There's your man for a king. But he's not going to be good enough. Someday I'll come as a son of David, and I'll do this for you. But he originally set up the nation that Yahweh was the king of Israel. 
So that's the first thing. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Yahweh, the King of Israel, and His, my markers are drying out, His Redeemer, who is the Redeemer? Well, right here in the English Standard, He is the Lord of hosts. Now, Lord of hosts, that's also all capital letters because the Lord of hosts is Yahweh, again, Yahweh, again, Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, which means the armies of heaven, Yahweh of hosts. So Yahweh, King of Israel, and His Redeemer, who is who? Yahweh of hosts. And then it says this, I am the first and I am the last, His name, I am, used twice, besides me, there is no God. And so point one, Yahweh is the King of Israel, and Yahweh is the Redeemer, who is Yahweh of hosts. And you can see I'm in the, in the Greek or the Hebrew down below there, reading it backwards. Thus says Yahweh the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, Yahweh. So Yahweh's the King, Yahweh's the Redeemer. Boom, there you've got Jesus who, who has to do, become it as a man. And then point C just describes David's sons ruling that, uh, filling that position. Point D, Yahweh would send the perfect Messiah, the king. Uh, and in Psalm 72, that king is going to be righteous and just. He'll have salvation. He'll be humble. And he'll bring peace, which is exactly what Zechariah's king in Zechariah 9 was coming on a donkey to do. So basically, this king, when he comes as a man, as the redeemer, will bring all those things to Israel that the king was supposed to bring. And now that's all the further we got. I, uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. And we got to pick this up next week. Uh, keep these notes. I'll make some more. I'll pray and then we're free to go. Or if you got a question or a correction, please feel free. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We ask that we would be able to process them and understand them, that we would find a greater hope and a greater depth of understanding and appreciation of who you are and what you're doing in our lives, that we might be a greater witness, uh, uh, live a life that is a greater testimony, and live a life that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here.